to Acts chapter 28. Studying the book of Acts on Sunday morning, very near the end, probably two studies after this one. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles with Bibles right now, and you flag them and they'll put a Bible in your hand. It'll be marked for our passage for your convenience this morning. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift uh, from the Lord to you today. Acts chapter 28. Beginning in verse 11. After three months, we sailed in an Alexandrian ship whose figurehead was the twin brothers, which had wintered at the island. And landing at uh, Syracuse, or Syracuse, this there in Italy, all right. We stayed three days, and from there we circled around, we circled around and reached uh, Regium, and after that, the south wind blew, and the next day we came to Puteoli. I'm getting hungry for Italian food uh, with every name. Where we found brethren and were invited to stay with them seven days. And so we went toward Rome. And from there, when, we had heard, when the brethren had heard about us, they came to meet us as far as Apiforum and three inns. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and he took courage. And now when they came to Rome, the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was permitted to dwell by himself with a soldier who guarded him. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you for your word. We love to read it every day, and we especially love the times where we can study it together. We live in a world that is just a continual voice. It seems as if you almost have to run away to find a place of quiet. So much noise, so much talking, so much input, Lord, and so much processing and being on guard, so many um, things attached to what's being said, so much dishonesty, so much attempt to manipulate. We're so thankful that we come to your word and you have only our best in mind, that your truth is pure, Lord, and it will never fail us, and we thank you for your Bible this morning to be able to study. And so we pray that you would minister it into our hearts today. We pray that you would give it life. We thank you for how it fashions our life, how it uh, prunes away from our lives certain things, how it adds to our lives other things that we can get from no other place. And it addresses our lives with broad brushes and broad strokes, Lord, on, on the canvas and fine brushes as well and fine strokes, all, all intended to conform us into the image of your Son. And we pray for these handful of verses this morning that the purpose behind them for accomplishing that great thing in our lives, that by your Holy Spirit it would be accomplished. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit is speaking to each of us this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. This travelogue by uh, Dr. Luke kind of detailing the journey of the Apostle Paul from the city of Jerusalem ultimately to the city of Rome, it continues and uh, a journey that Jesus had promised that Paul would successfully make. Following their uh, shipwreck on Malta, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, in 
uh, and the shipwreck occurring in mid-November, we're told that they spent the next three months uh, there waiting out the winter. And so, uh, sometime in mid-February, winter is now largely past in that part of the world, not completely in the same way that it isn't here in California. But the sea is uh, safe for the most part to be able to travel on, especially if you're going to travel by boat along a coastal area. Uh, Mid-February was not a time to throw, uh, take a ship out into the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. That'd be another month to six weeks out before that would be safe to do. But they're uh, on the island of Malta. They're heading a very short distance now to Sicily and then ultimately uh, to Italy. And so they're not out on the open sea. And so they feel as if uh, now is, is the time to uh, head out and continue the journey. They found a boat, we're told in verse 11, on the island that was making its way toward Rome. And uh, it had harbored in the island of Malta itself at the onset of of winter for its own own safety. It was attempting to get to Rome itself, but uh, it decided, no, the storms are too great, the risk is too great, uh, much like the ship that Paul was on ought to have done, and they harbored there for the winter, and now they're beginning uh, to make, want to make their journey to Rome. And so, Julius, the Roman centurion who was uh, taking Paul to Rome along with uh, other uh, prisoners, he uh, secures passage for all of the prisoners himself, his fellow guards, and so forth, to make that sign, final kind of sea portion of the journey. The boat itself is described for us by Luke and by the Holy Spirit in verse 11. It was an Alexandrian ship, which tells us it was virtually the same kind of ship uh, that Paul and the others had been on that had been shipwrecked. It was a part of this very vast fleet uh, that existed in the ancient world whose sole purpose was to take uh, grain from uh, the rich agricultural area of Egypt across the Mediterranean Sea uh, to feed the population of the city of Rome, which numbered at that point in time somewhere between one and two million people, double the size of the city, uh, mo modern uh, size of the city of San Francisco. So it gives you an idea of how many uh, mouths needed to be fed in that city and how important it was uh, in Rome to keep that grain and that food and that bread uh, uh, coming uh, uh, their way. So they we're told as well that they the ship had its figurehead, and a figurehead, I don't know, one of my favorite movies growing up as a kid was Jason and the Argonauts, not the new one, the old one. Um, and the figurehead was uh, on these ships would be, on the front of the ship would be this kind of carved, painted uh, image. It might be an animal, it might be a woman, it might be whatever it might be that would be on the ship. And we're told that on this particular ship, uh, there was uh, the twin brothers. In the ancient world, everyone knew who the twin brothers were. According to Greco-Roman mythology, Castor and Pollux uh, were considered, they were the twin brothers, and they were considered to be the sons of Leda, who was the queen of Sparta, and uh, who Zeus, according to, again, mythology, transformed into twin gods. And so they represent, uh, even today, the uh, constellation Gemini. And so the worship of the twin brothers in the form of vows or in the form of prayers uh, for safety, very, very widespread in those days, 
in the uh, country of Egypt, but really broadly uh, worshipped. They were among sailors. They were the kind of the patron gods or the guardians uh, of sailors in those days, that sailors trusted that these two gods uh, would look after them. And so, uh, to look up into the sky in those days at night and see the constellation Gemini in the middle of a storm would indicate uh, to them that uh, somehow these two uh, gods were looking out for them on their journey. I remember uh, when I was a boy, and some of you might remember it as well, it was very, very common to get into the car of some adult and for there to be a St. Christopher statue on the dash of the car. And uh, St. Christopher, as some of you may know and others may not know, is uh, kind of the uh, saint, uh, uh, patron saint of of travelers in the Roman Catholic Church. And so, it's kind of the same principle. They would add these things to their ships and uh, essentially for good luck. From Malta, we're told in verse 12, they traveled, uh, sailed to Syracuse. We'll use the uh, Americanized uh, version of the name. And uh, Syracuse was the capital of Sicily. And so, they traveled a distance of about 80 miles. We're told specifically that they stayed there for about three days. And then in verse 13, we're told that they made the 75-mile journey from Syracuse to uh, Regium, which is at the uh, tip of the boot of mainland Italy, and then further the 210 miles northward along the coast of Italy uh, to Puteoli. Uh, At Puteoli, uh, Paul and Dr. Luke Aristarchus, they found uh, Christians, they found brethren there in that uh, city, so they were invited to stay with them for seven days. Apparently, uh, the uh, Julius, the centurion, had some kind of official business that was involved there in Puteoli, required a week to uh, complete. They certainly didn't stop there and spend a week in order for Paul as a prisoner to spend time uh, with Christian friends, but there was this overlap, and it was convenient, and it shows you what kind of favor Paul had now uh, in the eyes of Julius and the other Roman, Roman soldiers as a result uh, of the trip. One of the things that this helps us to realize too, and it is important, is that uh, when we study the book of Acts, the book of Acts has uh, a, 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 a somewhat broad focus, but its focus is actually fairly narrow. It follows uh, the work and the ministry of the apostles, and it's, it is complete and it's perfect. There's no complaint related to it, but to realize that the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom of God and the fulfillment of the Great Commission, uh, what was going on in the ancient world was far greater than what's recorded in the book of Acts. And these various persecutions, Christians were being pushed out in all directions. We have no record of how a church got established in Puteoli. We don't even know how a church got established in Rome, but we know that it did. People were taking the gospel uh, all over the place, even beyond the ministry uh, of the apostle, uh, apostle Paul. And at Puteoli, uh, at that particular point, and probably thankfully for all, all of them, uh, the sea journey uh, part of their trip came to an end. Uh, Julius, Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, all the other prisoners uh, from that particular point begin now a 150-mile overland walk or journey uh, then to Rome. Now, I think it's important at this point in in the narrative here to 
uh, in order to kind of fully appreciate what I think is in this passage for us here this morning, to just stop and to put ourselves in Paul's shoes, to kind of remember his condition at this particular uh, moment in his journey. He's about 60 years old. That's an older man by ancient standards. Uh, today we talk about with all of our technology and cosmetic surgery and makeup and all the different things that we can do and hair dyes and so forth. Um, you know, we talk about, you know, 60 being, uh, you know, the new 50 or whatever the deal is that everybody, you know, kind of does this thing a little bit. Well, in the ancient world, 60 was the new 70, uh, the new 80. You were uh, well along. Life was hard, and you're pretty well beat up by that particular point. And, uh, and so, uh, that was his, uh, that's his age. He'd been a Christian for about 30 years. He'd been actively serving the Lord as an apostle for 25 years. I mean, you think about those 25 years, the 30 years really, all that his eyes had seen, all that his ears had heard as an apostle, a lot of water under the bridge, a lot of things that he had been involved in. Concerning his past, uh, immediately behind him in his uh, recent history, uh, as he was there in the city of, of Jerusalem, false accusations made against him by the Roman, or rather by the Jewish religious leaders. You remember Paul went to Jerusalem just with the mindset that if I can just get these people, have an audience with them one time, and declare to them the gospel and how Jesus is the promised Messiah from the law and the prophets, they will all turn. The light will go on for them in the same way that it, it went on uh, uh, for me. And if he thought he was just could have that chance that uh, all of this would be accomplished, and instead uh, their reaction was uh, involved rioting and calling for his death, at assassination attempts. I don't know the last time uh, somebody's attempted to assassinate you. Uh, but, you know, it's not a, much of our life uh, experience, but this was Paul's life experience. And all of these things take a toll on you. All of these things uh, take a nick out of, uh, out of you. And then ultimately he's imprisoned. And then as we've read in recent weeks, the Eurocliden, this horrible storm that he finds himself uh, in the middle of. I mean, so awful it just defies description and beyond anything that we could imagine. And then while in the midst of this storm, he ultimately ends up being shipwrecked as a result of the storm, and then he's being bitten by a viper. But all of that in terms of Paul's past, and all of that was merely his recent history. You go back further into those 25 years of his Christian service as he wrote to the church at Corinth, and it involved labors more abundant, stripes above measure. He was beaten in, in, in with stripes for his faith in Christ. He said, I can't even remember how many times that's happened. I can't even tell you how many stripes have been laid across my back. Prisons more frequently, and deaths often. Five times beaten with 40 stripes minus one. Three times beaten with rods. Stoned one time. Three times shipwrecked before this shipwreck. A day and a night he spent in the deep, and journeys often. Perils of waters, he wrote. Perils of robbers. Perils of his own countrymen, the Jews. Perils of the Gentiles. Perils in the cities. Perils in the wilderness. Perils in the sea. Perils among false brethren. Weariness, he wrote about. Toil, sleeplessness often. 
hunger, thirst, fastings often, and these weren't voluntary fasts, in cold, in nakedness. And he said, besides all of these other things that uh, are the things that come upon me uh, daily. In other words, all of the, I have all of these things on top of what everyone else faces in the course of life, all of the things that I have to face as a member of the human race and as a, a member of mankind. And it isn't my purpose at all this morning to unpack any of that this morning, but just to simply uh, mention it to consider the impact that all of that would ultimately and cumulatively have upon a person. I don't care how strong the person is, the cumulative demand and drain that all of that would have had upon him over those long years, not just his recent history, but his long-term past history. In terms of his present, his present condition and circumstances, we see them described for us right here. And he doesn't complain. Paul never complains. But you put yourself again in his shoes in the midst of what's described here, knowing something about him, and imagine the humiliation of a 60-year-old man, of his accomplishments and of his life experience. You think about his background, a Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, concerning the law, blameless, an apostle. He is, even beyond all of those things, just simply a man. And here he is being paraded toward Rome, not merely as a common criminal, but in the company of criminals who have been guilty of capital crimes. They are headed for death. And the shame of walking through one city after another, after another, after another, and being witnessed by men and women and children as they stare at him and they think the worst of him, and you knowing that nothing that they think of you is true at all, nothing that they are assuming of you is true of your life. And then to consider what lay immediately before Paul, there is complete uncertainty uh, humanly speaking. He knows he's going to go to Rome. He knows he's going to stand before Caesar, but he knows nothing beyond that in terms of the promises of God. He has no idea what the outcome of the trial is going to be before Caesar Nero. What would be the reaction of the religious Jews when he comes uh, to Rome? And uh, would there be a new wave of accusations against him, new calls for his death, new attempts to uh, martyr him? And what would be the attitude of the Christians in Rome toward him? as he's brought here now to this city. It was a shame to be chained up like this. It was a shame to be a criminal in, in the Roman Empire. And as they saw him coming, shackled as a common prisoner, would they be ashamed of him? Would they listen to him? Would they care anything about him at all? And it's all of this that sets the stage for what we see here and, and that comes next. And it is described for us very beautifully, very concisely in verse 15. And you notice the action of the Christians from Rome. Somehow in the course of Paul's 150-mile uh, uh, journey on foot toward Rome, somehow word got to Rome 
before he got there that he was coming, that the Apostle Paul is on his way. And as a result, we're told here that a significant group of Christians from Rome, they determined to immediately begin their march to Rome. They were so filled with the excitement that uh, they couldn't think of just waiting for him to reach Rome on his own, and then they would greet him. Instead, they determined to get to him as soon as possible on the road to meet him along the way, to greet him and then to escort him in mass all the way into Rome themselves. And we're told that some of them traveled a full, the first group that gets to Paul, they traveled a full 43 miles on foot from Rome to Appi Forum to welcome Paul. And the thing to realize here is that everything, all of this was completely unexpected by Paul. And so you picture him here in the scene that's painted, and he's surrounded by all of the other prisoners, and he's trudging through the town. And then suddenly a group of people are standing off to one side, and they begin to ask of this large group of prisoners who's making their way through the city, which prisoner is the Apostle Paul? And then upon identifying him, they identify themselves to him as Christians, and they begin to hug him and to kiss him and to greet him and to welcome him and then declare to him their intent to escort him into Rome. And imagine the impact of that. And if Paul had any concern about how he would be received by the Christians in Rome, and he did, this dispelled all of it. They communicated to him that he was well-loved and he was well-respected by the church there. And imagine the impact that this would not only have had upon the Apostle Paul, but that it would have had upon Julius, the other soldiers, the other prisoners. They had never witnessed anything like this before, never seen a scene like this before. But that wasn't the end of it. Then we're told within the passage, just 10 miles further up the road, 33 miles now from Rome, the entire scene is played out again as a new group of Christians from Rome greet Paul and add themselves then to the escort. Remember, Paul was well known to them uh, at this point. He had already written his letter to the Romans some four years earlier while he was at Corinth on his third uh, missionary journey. And doubtless that letter to the Romans had been read by every Christian in Rome, and maybe even copies of it had been put together and, and, uh, and, and you know, permeating uh, the city of Rome in terms of, of the Christian presence, presence there. Also important to realize that this was Paul's first visit to Rome. He had dreamed all of his life of coming to Rome and preaching the gospel there, but he did not start the church there. One of the interesting things about the imagery that's uh, described for us here within the passage, that in uh, ancient Rome, when a Roman emperor uh, or a great general would uh, return from some kind of significant battle associated uh, with uh, the Roman Empire. Great crowds would come out from Rome, 
and then greet the emperor so that he would then be escorted in with a large mass of people from some significant distance from the city. And these Christians here, very deliberately, nothing accidental about it, are giving Paul an emperor's welcome here, a hero's welcome into Rome, despite his physical circumstances and the shame of it. I might very well say, as we look at that, at all of this at, at, at this point, and at, at the observe, can you imagine the impact that all of this would have had upon Paul, except that there's no need to pose the question at all for us, because the Holy Spirit anticipates that that's the question in each of our hearts as Christians. And the reaction of Paul, how the impact that it had upon him is recorded for us in the second half of verse 15, and I think it's encapsulated in four very simple words. Uh, the word saw, the word them, the word thanksgiving, and the word encouraged. Or, uh, and uh, I begin with the fact that it filled him with thanksgiving. The first reaction that this had upon the heart of the Apostle Paul, the immediate reaction was when he saw this, he felt compelled to thank God for this display of Christian love and fellowship. I mean, as it's described here in the passage, it's almost voluntary. He is so impacted by it that he immediately begins to thank God for the encouragement that's represented in, in all of it. And it tells us that he really, really, really appreciated it. His heart was, heart was immediately filled with gratitude, so much so that he felt compelled to express it to God uh, in prayer. And I think only God and Paul, of course, knew how much he needed what happened here and how much it meant to him after all he had been through in his Christian life and Christian experience on the short term. And then on the long term, we notice that word that he took courage as a result of this. And all of this encouraged him. When it speaks in there, verse 15, about he took courage, it means it's the idea that it filled him immediately with courage. Not just with thanksgiving, but immediately filled him with courage. It filled him with confidence in the face of everything that he had been through, in the face that of everything that he knew was right around the corner from him. He needed courage. He needed encouragement from someone here. And, and this great gesture on their part accomplished it. I think it's interesting to realize that our English word uh, courage, encourage, it has its root in two French words, uh, the first word meaning in, and the second word meaning courage. It is to, to encourage someone is to infuse courage into their life as a result of uh, the circumstances that they're in, their need uh, for courage. And it tells us that Paul clearly was in need of courage, and God provided it to him through his people. Paul isn't in any danger of quitting his ministry. He wasn't about to collapse, but he was in need of encouragement. He'd given away an awful lot of his courage to other people on this trip, and now he needed to receive some courage or encouragement from someone else. Every single person in the body of Christ who encourages another person, we love encouragement, we need encouragement, 
but the realization, especially when you look at a Paul or you look at uh, maybe even leaders within a church, say a pastor or a teacher or a worship leader or a missionary or a, a greeter or an usher or whoever, as they give themselves to encouraging uh, God's people, there is an output that is a part of all of that. And that that courage that is being given in the form of encouragement to other people that needs to be resupplied into a person's life. And uh, sometimes that happens just between a person and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it happens in prayer. Sometimes it happens in the ministry of the Word of God. And sometimes it occurs in the encouragement of God's people toward them or toward one another. I think, obviously, as we look at the passage, this encouragement came to Paul at a very strategic time in his life. He's at a very vulnerable moment in his life. And if the encouragement had been brought to him later, it wouldn't have meant as much as it did. But coming when it did, it meant a great deal to Paul. Uh, I like a quote that I read many, many years ago, a word of encouragement during a time of failure is worth more than a whole book of praise after success. And that's the truth. Paul is no failure here, but you see the point that I'm making, how strategic, timely encouragement is, where somebody encourages someone. It, it wasn't the greatest thing in the world to identify as a Christian with a Roman prisoner in those days. Uh, it, it was a risk in order to do that, and yet these people did that. And, but recognizing that at this moment, this encouragement will mean more to him than all the praise we could lavish upon him, page after page after page of it, after he's on the other side of the circumstance that, that he is in. Mark Twain wrote humorously of, of encouragement. He said, I can live for two months on a good compliment, and we could exchange uh, encouragement for that. I could live two months on a good encouragement. And there's that recognition in our own life. We've all been encouraged by other people. And what a, a tide of difficulty that can be occurring within our life. And that one little single strand of encouragement, that's the thing that we hold on to. It gives us perspective, can even wash away everything else that is kind of uh, pounding against us. That's the power of encouragement. And the power of encouragement when it's given at just uh, the needed time or the right time, it reminds us that it is powerful stuff. Now, notice that word saw as in the passage as well. Paul was filled with thanksgiving, and he was deeply encouraged initially, not by anything that they said, not by a word that they spoke to him. Not a word was spoken before he was encouraged and took courage. He took courage simply by their presence. And I think that so often in the culture that we live in, we value, put so much value on speaking and verbal communication in our culture, that we can come to believe that unless we're masters at speaking, unless we're wordsmiths, or unless we're eloquent in some kind of a way, we have no means of being an encouragement to anyone else. But here's an encouragement that is physical. Here's an encouragement that doesn't involve words at all. Here's an encouragement that I would describe as the power of presence. 
and it is the encouraging impact that our lives have upon others simply by our presence with them during difficult times. And that presence with them, without a word even being spoken so often, it provides us with a reminder that we're not alone in this uh, trial, humanly speaking. We're not alone in the Christian life. We're not alone in the, pilgrim, the pilgrimage that we're in. And, uh, and this means so much, especially during strategic times when people are especially burdened by the circumstances of life and feel especially vulnerable, even as a Christian, as a result. I remember the first trip I took to the subcontinent of India with, with Gail Irwin many, many, many years ago. And we were down at the very southern tip of India, and there's an island there called Rameshwaram. And we had gone to visit a man by the name of Moses Palos. And when people become Christians out of Hindu background and so forth and in, uh, in that culture, uh, so often they will rename, and they'll rename from biblical names. They're so thankful to be saved. Uh, they're such a clean break from their pagan past, and they've been so impacted by the Word of God that they take on the names that come out of the Bible. And here he takes two of them takes one of them from the Old Testament, takes one of them from the New Testament, Moses and Paul. And he's a very significant individual in terms of the kingdom of God in southern India, very highly esteemed. And we were invited to dinner uh, uh, to spend the evening, the night at this man's house with his family. And uh, it was the most exotic night I've ever spent in my life, sleeping up on the roof, flat top roof, and all of the sounds and wild. But that night, they wanted to do something special for us, and so they made us a dinner of French fries and prawns. I don't know where they got the potatoes, but they wanted, they knew Americans like French fries, and so they made them for us in prawns. And they'd just been uh, pulled out of the sea that very day, the most gigantic prawns I've ever seen in my life. Well, I, when I'm out uh, in a field. I'll eat just about anything that will be put in front of me, but I can't get prawns down. I, you, you love them, and I, it's great. I'm, you can have mine. But I just, so I just said no to the prawns, and I ate the French fries that night. And what nobody knew is that those prawns were bad. And Gail proceeded to get very, very sick, and I mean really deathly sick uh, that night. But the next day, we had a 10-hour uh, bus trip from Rameshwaram up into another place in Tamil Nadu where Gail was scheduled to speak, and people had walked uh, uh, scores of miles, maybe hundreds of miles by train and so forth to come to this conference that was scheduled. And so we loaded up on this bus. Every seat is full. Everybody's standing. There's animals on the bus and all. And for the next 10 hours, Gail is in a condition I've never seen anybody quite in, in, in that. And when Moses Paulus saw the, the condition that Gail was in, though an extraordinarily busy man himself, he bought a fare himself for that bus, and he delivered Gail safely to the next city, and then he overnight rode uh, a bus returning that evening. And that's the power of presence that goes way beyond words. 
doesn't require eloquence to do something like that. But obviously, I've never forgotten it, and I know that Gail's never forgotten it as well. When I think about the power of presence at work in a church, there is what I think of as the power of the pew. And when I say this talk about the pew. I never think about it as clergy and laity. I never think about what we're doing in a room like this is me doing something and then me performing and then you spectators and so forth. There's the Holy Spirit of God's in this room. He's working. This is a part of what He does in making us disciples. This is a part of the fellowship that we have. It's one of the ways that He's, he's made for us to, to become, uh, grow in maturity as Christians. I don't take anything from the culture, from what happens in an environment like this, and then superimpose a, upon what happens within a church. And someday, I hope, I want, one day I want to do a, a, a sermon, a, a series of sermons on the power of the pew, the power not of the pulpit, not of the leadership, not of the organization or whatever it might be, the pow- but the power of what happens in a church, and it happens solely and, and most strongly and dynamically from the pew, from, from our lives, all of us collectively as we would make up an individual church. And here I, I, I see in, in all of this what I think of as the power of the pure, the power of the congregation, the power of a congregation as a whole. And when we, I think it, it, we all recognize this and how we come into church and one by one as we uh, come and take our seat within, uh, within the church. And then we notice who's already uh, sitting in our section, and we're blessed to see that they're present. Ah, they're still walking with the Lord. What a wonderful thing. They're at church uh, today. We may not even know them. We may not know their name, but, uh, but church would be something less if they were not present in the room as we see them week in and week out. And just seeing them in their place, even knowing nothing about them, but seeing them in their place, it fills us with this uh, thankfulness, and, it, and it's such a strong encouragement uh, to us. It happens to me. I, I'm the senior pastor of this uh, church. I have a role within this church. But this is the church that I attend. This is the congregation that I'm a part of. This is where I come for fellowship. This is where I come from for relationship. This is where I come for church to be in my life what it is in every other Christian. And what a, it's a wonderful thing for me to look out Sunday by Sunday, whether from the back while I'm worshiping the Lord or from the front while I'm teaching the Word of God or while I'm mingling and fellowshipping with people before and after the service to see your faces. And the church is of such a size, it's always embarrassing to me when someone catches me at the back door and says, you know, we've been attending here for 18 months and thought we ought to meet, you know, and they introduce themselves. And I wish I could meet and talk with everybody every single Sunday, but it's not physically possible. But there is the, there is the encouragement of presence that goes on all of the time. Oh, they're in their place. I see them there. Uh, Dell messes me up a little bit because he's sitting over here, and everybody knows his place is right over here. And so you got these people that they, they affect my equilibrium. But for the most part, I'm having vertigo right now. Just hold on a second. But for the most part, we do sit where we sit. 
And, to, and we don't even realize what an encouragement it is to other people. We don't say a word. We think we're just, as my friend Lee Shaw used to say, I'm just dirt under the toenail of the body of Christ. Nobody notices me. No, I have no impact. I have no influence. And we don't realize what an influence we have and what a, a, a cause and source of thanksgiving we are just by our presence in the local church and, and a cause for uh, in, encouragement. And again, God has many ways to encourage us as Christians. His spirit, prayer, the Word of God, as I've mentioned. But He also uses, uh, this, he also uses the encouragement that comes from one another as uh, Christians. And I think this is why the writer of the book of Hebrews exhorts us as Christians not to forsake the assembling together uh, of the saints. I'll read the passage to you in Hebrews chapter 10. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And the, and the word has an idea of encouraging exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day, that is the return of the Lord, approaching. And to come to church and to attend church and to be consistent in that, not merely because of what it does in us, but the realization of what it does in the heart and in the spirit and in the minds of other Christians. And finally, notice that word them as it's in the passage. You notice who was it that produced this great thanksgiving and this infusion of courage into the life and into the spirit and heart and mind of the apostle uh, Paul. We notice that they weren't other apostles. They're not even identified as other leaders in the church in Rome. And not, we're not even given their names in the passage. They're just simple, regular, nameless Christians, as they're described for us here, who just happen to do this sacrificial and compassionate thing for Paul in a strategic moment, going the extra mile when uh, he needed it uh, most. And it made a difference. And God wants us to know that this kind of thing makes a difference, and I think that's why he recorded such a small little snippet, small little picture of this in his word in the book of Acts for us this morning. And again, why would God include this for us? Why would he record all of this, set the stage for it, and then write verse 15 for us, unless it has something to say to us as Christians today as well. And I think perhaps to remind us of that what was true of the Apostle Paul is also true of virtually every Christian we run into in church on a weekly basis or we will ever run into, into in, uh, even beyond church. And to realize that the average Christian that we run into is very much in the same condition as the Apostle Paul. And, here, and, and I believe concerning every Christian I run into today, every Christian that walks the talk, they are paying a personal price for that in the culture in which we live. They are paying a price for that, to walk the talk of the Bible today. 
and to realize concerning every Christian we run into in this room or in the fellowship hall or in any church that we might ever go to, that I'm running into someone who's walking down a, a journey of life, just like the Apostle Paul, and they have all manner of hardship in their near past and in their distant past, and everyone that we run into is facing the same thing that Paul did, looking at a seemingly uncertain future, and virtually every one of them in need of some expression of compassion, some expression of encouragement, some reminder that they are not alone in all of this. And I think the passage is good and intended to remind us and to remind me that each and every Sunday morning, that again, that this is probably the condition of the significant number of people in this room and in the fellowship and beyond. And then to remind myself, who knows what kind of a storm that person has been through in life over the last 25 years? What kind of storms have become a part of their life for simply being faithful to God and God's call upon their lives? What kind of storm and shipwreck has been a part of their immediate past? What kind of trial do they find themselves in the middle of? Or what have they just gone through? Or what have they just come out of? And to consider how much of a need that they might have in their lives for someone to go the extra mile, to go the, uh, and be an encouragement to them. Oswald Sanders uh, was exactly right when he wrote the following. He said, the ministry of consolation and encouragement is not to be regarded as inferior or of secondary importance. Did we but discern it, uh, we uh, are daily surrounded by lonely, aching, and sometimes broken hearts. And that's the truth of the matter. It's the truth within this room, and it's a truth in virtually all of our contact with Christians. And who else is going to care for a Christian in this world? Who cares about Christians in this world? Who is going to care for a Christian in this world, especially in the midst of the hardship that we face, in the midst of endeavoring to walk with God and endeavoring to be salt and light in the world and the sphere of influence that, that is, is ours. And then, and, and the realization that here we are as Christians in the midst of a very foreign place, a very foreign land that is called planet Earth and called the United States of America, by the way. And then to think about the persecution and the loneliness that goes so often now with making a stand for righteousness' sake within this culture. And who's going to look out for you? And who's going to look out for me? And how, who's going to look out for one another unless we do that as Christians for uh, one another? And the Apostle Paul already had written to these Christians in Rome in his letter to them, Romans chapter 12, verse 5. And he said, so we being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
The reason that I mentioned this this morning, and, uh, and with some conviction this morning, is not because I think we have a problem here, uh, although I think all of us can become better related uh, to all of this. But the reason that I think what we see here in this passage is so important for us as Christians in the United States of America is because our secular culture, our national culture, so nurtures an individualistic spirit, and it so nurtures a self-dominated mindset that, everyone, that everything becomes just about me, and not only in the world but even in church. What did I get out of it? Did anyone talk to me? Was anyone nice to me? And so forth. It's all about me. I judge the entire thing on the basis of what I received. And more and more being nurtured within the culture that we're in, the conforming that occurs within the church, that now after a long period of this kind of marketing uh, of things where we look at anything that we buy within the culture and we say to ourselves, how can I get the most for the least? and then the marketing of Christian churches, and now we begin to take that mindset into an individual church and begin to try and find a church and find the one that I will attend on the basis of what gives me the most for the least that I can give to it. And everyone wants an Amazon Prime out of their Christian experience. But if everybody goes there and we all get conformed into that, then who's going to encourage one another? Who's going to look out for one another? We fight a culture. We fight a conforming process. We fight an indoctrination that isn't just a part of secular culture now. It now is beginning to fashion and form us individually and the body of Christ as a whole. And so in the midst of this thing that we find ourselves in the middle of, it's important to stop every once in a while and be reminded of the other's side of Christianity, not merely the vital vertical side of Christianity, the relationship that I have with God, but the also important to God horizontal side of Christianity, and that is our love for one another. And I think as we sit here this morning under the glorious weight of the example of these Christians that we're going to one day see uh, in heaven ourselves, who so encouraged the Apostle Paul here. Think about it. Willing to walk 43 miles over land on foot, and then to walk 43 miles all the way back to Rome with the Apostle Paul in the hopes of being an encouragement to him and his relationship with God. Just to make the Apostle Paul know, we're excited that you are here. And maybe some of us, maybe all of us, would determine, I think, under the weight of a passage like this, just to determine the privacy of our heart and to just stop and, and, and to think and say, I- I'm going to commit by God's grace and and under the influence of the Holy Spirit to start to come early enough or to stay long enough uh, before and after a service 
to at least as a commitment of my own heart to acknowledge two or three people as another human being within the room that I'm in, in the church that I attend, and, and to be an encouragement in some way, to make sure that they're doing all right and they're encouraged in their walk with the Lord, and then to be used by God to produce that in others, what these precious saints did in the heart of the Apostle Paul. I think that this passage reminds us of the necessity and the power of encouragement, and it's a good reminder. And I think the passage also reminds us that each of us, every single one of us as Christians, that we, each of us has a part in this ministry of compassion and encouragement in whatever local church we uh, attend. There's an old story, and I close with this, of a little boy who was frightened one night during a big thunderstorm. And uh, terrified, he cried out to the other room where his father was sleeping. And he said, Daddy, I'm scared. And uh, his father, not wanting to get out of bed, he called back, Don't worry, son. God loves you, and he'll take care of you. And uh, there was a moment of silence, and then the little boy said, I know God loves me, but right now I need somebody with skin on. And uh, I think that that's true of all of us at one time or another in our Christian life. And it's only the only others with skin on that can provide this or have any interest in providing this in our life as another Christian. And it's one of the reasons we're called the body of Christ. And again, when we leave here today, I think there's a strong encouragement and even an exhortation in a passage uh, like this. But I want you to know that I am not in any way saying that this is not strongly represented within, within this body. I'm not trying to correct something. I'm just trying to look at a passage and see the beauty and the strength of it to see maybe another key to the Christian life that makes a church what uh, it, it, it wouldn't be otherwise, and then to bring it forth this morning. I'm so thankful for what so many of you already do in this vein, week in and week out. But if I'm not, then there is a place to look and to say, I'm going to rethink my dash from the car into this room and then the dash back to the car without knowing anybody else in the room or without caring if they're getting along okay and making it through uh, the life that they face week in and week out as a result of being a part of the local body. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the little Polaroid snapshot of, of what happened there, all the emotion of it, the, the lesson behind it for, that is timeless, Lord, in terms of Paul's time in the first century church, but also so important to us today. And Lord, we don't want, and it's certainly not my intent, you know my heart very well, to lay any kind of a guilt trip on anyone or any kind of a condemnation. But we do want to hear your voice in this regard. And not as a church or not some large group of people numbering in the hundreds, but that you would speak to us individually, to our individual heart, Lord, concerning this important mark of Christianity in our own lives, in our own interaction 
with this church and with Christians elsewhere. And we pray, Lord, for that work of your Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can walk with the confidence that we're having this same influence in the lives of other Christians who face every bit as much as Paul faced in his day. And all of the subtlety and the craftiness and the warfare and the lies, Lord, and the difficulty of life in this age, especially as a Christian. And we pray these things and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.